Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. This recording starts after the session has already begun. Our State Department of Ecology has been in existence for uh, going on 50 years, actually. We were created by our state legislature before the Federal Environmental Protection Agency was created. Talking about filling gaps, um, we wanted to jump in right away. Um, and and um, we have been delegated authority under uh, the Federal Clean Air Act and the Federal uh, Clean Water Act for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, I think we are Washington State, the first state in the nation to have received delegation under the Federal Clean uh, Water Act. Um, and we're very proud of the legacy. Um, uh, and we've, we've really come a long way. And to see right now, for example, the 85 uh, different regulatory uh, rule uh, rollbacks that are happening um, with the current uh, Trump administration is absolutely appalling. Um, it takes a long time to put some of the environmental benefits into place that these laws were intended for our residents and our, uh, our, our states uh, to be able to have the benefit of. And to simply turn around and with a um, stroke of a Sharpie um, say that that no longer is, uh, is important um, is absolutely nearsighted. And I really um, am, am uh, disheartened and concerned um, that uh, the Trump administration is, is essentially um, balancing the checkbook of profits on the back of our children and their, uh, uh, their uh, children and future generations. Um, so as the regulator for Washington State uh, Department of Ecology and implementing our clean air and clean water laws, um, I'm standing very firm in terms of um, putting an offense together and a defense together. And those are some of the things um, I'll hope to talk to you about on this panel. Um, but again, I, I think it's, it's reckless and it's dangerous policy um, and it, it, it should not stand. Jeff? So I guess I'll say that um, what's happening at the federal level and how it impacts Fort Collins is frankly immaterial. Um, and the reason I say that is I'm sure you guys all know for the first time in the world's history, more people live in urban areas than they live in rural areas. First time ever. So we all know that. So where is the most energy being consumed in cities and where are the most greenhouse gases being produced in cities? So in Fort Collins, we're a city and we feel we have an obligation. I'll say it again, an obligation to uh, fight climate change. So as a city, we have a climate action plan that was unanimously adopted by our city council, all seven. They're nonpartisan, but all seven of them who lean one way or another thought it was a critically important thing to do. So in our, in our climate action plan, isn't that complicated, really? Our goal is to be um, completely climate neutral by 2050, but 50%, again, 50% of our climate action plan is really about energy efficiency. What could be more basic than that? So. We're going to do what we're going to do in Fort Collins. Our residents are significantly behind it, and we feel we have an obligation as a, as a city to show the rest of the world that a city of our size, 180,000 people, can do really amazing, important things and hopefully inspire other cities to do the same thing. Faye? I would say that not only can cities and states pick up the slack where the federal government is taking, won't take or can't take action, but we actually need the cities and states to lead the way and continue to lead the way they always have when it comes to um, making public policy. States are the laboratories of democracy. That's where we can, states and cities are where we can first craft policy solutions to some of our biggest challenges. We can 
see what works, what doesn't work. We can improve on those policy solutions, and then we can craft and shape more effective federal policy. Um, a report came out last year showing that the policies that have been adopted by states, cities, and other institutions, including businesses, um, will cut U.S. emissions 17 percent from 2005 levels to 2025, which amounts to roughly two-thirds of what the entire country's obligation is to the Paris Climate Agreement. That's not nearly enough, but that's substantial, and substantial especially when you have a federal government that isn't taking action. It was um, the Rocky Mountain Institute, the World Resources Institute, and the University of Maryland. And Faye, while we're on you, what, what do you think are some of the most newsworthy uh, policies either implemented or being implemented or about to be implemented in some of the states where your organization works? Yeah, I think um, the what is really um, sweeping the country right now are the renewable portfolio standards. Um, in Just in September 2018, the state of California adopted I believe was the latest state to adopt a 100% standard following in the footsteps of Washington state, where now California is committed to being having um, in 100% carbon-free electricity grid by the year 2050. Um, there are now 30 states who have some kind of renewable portfolio standard, six of which, including California and Washington, have committed to 100% carbon-free. Maya, how are you going to get to 100%, and can you? Um, we absolutely can and we should and we, we do need to fill that gap because of the lack of leadership on the federal side. So our legislature this last 2019 um, passed our 100% uh, clean energy law. Um, it is slated to um, have us be carbon neutral in Washington state by 2030 um, and carbon free on our grid by 2045. Now, keep in mind that we have an incredible hydroelectric um, contribution in our state. And some would say, why are you even stepping in? What does it matter, Washington State? Your contribution is is so low. What We have about 6.5 billion metric tons of, of carbon emissions uh, that are produced in the United States of America per year. Washington State contributes around approximately 100 million metric tons. Why even bother? We absolutely need to lead. Um, and Faye has it right, and Jeff has it right. Um, we have a lot of leeway in our state to be able to adopt laws that we put into place. But why we do also need the federal government to lead is there are certain types of standards and rules that we are otherwise argued that we're preempted from putting in place. For example, um, the California Clean Air Law um, that 15 states or so have bought into in terms of trying to reduce, uh, provide uh, higher efficiency um, for our, our cars in terms of fuel and putting better cars in the market so we have either um, higher miles per, per gallon, which means they're using less fuel, um, or having less carbon emissions on the back end. And so if we are hamstrung in terms of how we implement the Federal Clean Air Act, that is a problem. How do we fill the gap? Um, in my state, we are looking at um, a, a very big push to electric vehicles. We're having, um, uh, we're installing um, electrical uh, and electric vehicle charging stations across the state, even in very rural areas of our state. We have to fill that gap. I believe about 45% of the carbon emissions generated in Washington state are from the transportation sector. Our cars, our trucks, um, getting our kids to school on their school buses, our small, um, you know, uh, personal sedans and vehicles. We need to figure out 
a methodology to do that. And our state is going to be embarking on looking at a low-carbon fuel standard as well, of which we had a poison pill by our legislature when it was split, when our House was Democrats and our Senate was Republicans. Um, our Republican friends put a poison pill in our transportation package several years ago, about a $12 billion state transportation package that we had, saying, Governor Inslee and Maya Bellin is the director, if you put a low-carbon fuel standard in a place, we will cut the multimodal portion of the entire state transportation package, um, essentially in a vindictive way um, because of concerns about potentially bumping up a very small amount of the cost of fuel in our state um, in order to reduce that overall carbon footprint for um, the cars using gasoline. Go ahead. Maya, yeah. uh, while we're on that topic, you recently hosted the National Environmental Council of States. Yes. In, 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 which is essentially your colleagues from other states, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And, and that was in Seattle? or yes, it was. Okay, so what happened there? And what was the sentiment? And what is your message to red state colleagues of yours? Yeah. First of all... Um, Especially as it comes to retribution. Right, right. So the Environmental Council of States, for those of you that don't know, is a nonpartisan, um, uh, non-governmental... Um, and you know, and our our version of um, an association for all equivalent. Uh, Department of Ecology, DEQ, directors, commissioners, secretaries across the United States of America. Um, and we get together um, twice a year to try to engage on these complex uh, issues that we're ch ch challenges that we have, stormwater, water quality issues, air quality. Um, and so I put a bid in to be able to host that conference uh, in Seattle several years ago. It landed in Seattle two weeks ago, um, the week of the 23rd or the 24th of Seattle. 45 states came to Seattle to attend, 45 directors um, and staff. And um, during that time, as we were sitting there, even after having had EPA partners at the table, a uh, very disturbing letter was sent to the state of California um, with regards to the homelessness population and essentially accusatory that California was failing to meet its obligations under the Clean Water and the Clean Air Acts. What an absolute farce. Um, number one, we have EPA who's very late in approving many of the state implementation plans for the air quality regulations that they are implementing as a federally delegated uh, program in California. And it's really a punitive action. California has some of the best um, environmental protections in the country, along with Washington State and I'm sure Colorado, mm -hmm. um, and it um, and, and really is, uh, again, just uh, trying to kind of use um, as a political pawn uh, the environmental issues to be able to go after states um, in, in general. But at that meeting, when that letter came out, the states rose together, and we prepared a statement, you can see it online on the ECOS website, that essentially said, these surprises um, uh, coming from the federal government in my state, repealing rules that only apply to our state based on our population, our Native American population that has treaty rights, um, that expect to be able to eat clean fish from the waters in our lakes and our rivers and our streams. Um, uh, absolute nonsense to come into our state and tell us how we should regulate our waters to make sure Washingtonians um, have uh, don't have a higher risk of, of cancer exposure uh, from eating fish. And so they wrote a statement that said, states' rights matters, and let's not provide lip service for cooperative federalism only when it matters to you or gets the benefit EPA that you and your cronies are looking for. So a very strong statement. What I would tell my friends in red states, and I tell them over and over and over again, is we all care about the environment and let us help regulate in our states the way we deem fit for our residents. And one state that would bristle 
at the fact um, that I would maybe have a hand in what they're doing in their state. Um, I'm saying I'm not going there. I'm, I want to protect my state, do it the best way my residents think is possible, um, and not be told I can't protect Washington residents based on the unique features in our state. Jeff? Yeah, and I'll, I'll make an argument, too, that not everything when it comes to climate change needs to be regulatory or punitive. Sure. And I mean that. Yeah. So yeah. And let me give you an example. It can be done through partnerships and creative problem solving. And I'll tell you a bit of a story, but I think you'll appreciate it. So a couple of blocks away is the largest cafeteria in um, Fort Collins, right, where they're generating a tremendous amount of food waste, and it's hard for them to get rid of it. So what Colorado State does is they truck it to the landfill. And it goes in the landfill and it creates methane gas, and that doesn't do anybody any good, right? It's expensive and it creates challenges for us. City of Fort Collins, obviously, we, we um, operate wastewater treatment plants, and as part of that, we're creating methane gas. And there's times for us to have challenges dealing with that off-gassing, and sometimes we have to flare it. And if you're a community that is all about climate change and you're flaring, flaring methane gas, boy, that doesn't set a good message to anybody who does it. And at the same time, we have um, really good Fortune 500 companies in Fort Collins that are trying to use innovative products and engines to deal with methane gas, right? But yet they're trying to, they have a challenge finding beta sites to test their products. So what do we do? We partnered all together, and it's really simple. CSU took their food waste, trucked it to our wastewater treatment plant, instilled it right into our treatment uh, plant, creating methane gas, but in this way it was a good thing because it's creating fuel, right? We took that fuel, we actually put it into a, to an engine. Where do we get that engine from? Woodward Corporation, a Fort Collins company that's developing experimental engines and they're trying to figure out good ways to use methane gas. They're generating, we're generating the fuel for them, thanks to CSU, to test their engine. And what is that engine doing? It's creating electricity for the sewage treatment plant. So who wins in that situation? S students at um, CSU, uh, Larimer County residents who don't have to have product in their landfill, um, city of Fort Collins because we're no longer off-gassing, and our utility customers because now we're using clean energy to fuel the plant instead of, of spending money. Think about all the partnership and all the way we're creating economy for um, climate instead of creating methane gas. So again, there's ways to do partnership and there's ways to work together so everybody can raise up instead of only being punitive and regulatory. So I just want to make sure that story got in. And Jeff, the city yep. of Fort Collins plans to be carbon neutral by 2050 yep. and 100% renewable by uh, powered by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, for the reporters in the room who come from cities, counties, and states where they might have similar goals, mm -hmm. um, how do you measure that? Can the measurements be relied upon? Are there some cities that are kind of cutting corners. Um, yeah. what, what should these reporters know about those kinds of uh, goals? Yeah, so we've, we've provided um, different ways to do climate action planning for cities all across the United States because we're asked to provide our comments. There's really two ways to do it. Some is simply just listing and identifying certain ways to make climate change and not necessarily measuring it, but here's what we're going to do with, regarding waste and energy efficiency and so on. That's climate action planning, and we think that's very valuable. Another way to do it, which is how we do it in Fort Collins, is we set specific standards and you rattle them off to be climate neutral by 2050, but then you have to measure it. You're right. It's, it's emerging. I don't think anybody in the world is doing it exactly right, but you can measure it very well. We have a, um, a power provider where that can tell us exactly what they're using for greenhouse gases to generate power. 
everybody can talk to their, their um, city departments for traffic and, and their state department of transportation, talk about vehicles, miles traveled, and, and so forth. And you can also talk to your, um, whoever's doing your waste to figure out how much is going into the landfill. All those ways are easy, readily available ways to measure greenhouse gases. And when you institute programs, you can actually measure exactly how much you're reducing it. And that's simple, simple math, it really is. Having said that, though, there was a lot of different ways for us to get much better across the world in, in that space. Mm. But I do think that people have to make a choice if you're a city. Either be aspirational, list it, and get after it, or be very specific about your measurements. If you, if you just say, we're going to be climate neutral by X date, but you can't explain how you're doing it, then I think you're wasting people's time. And Faye, there's much I want to ask you, but I want to give you a chance to kind of respond to what's being said right here first. Um, the one thing that I that stands out to me that I wanted to comment on is um, going back to the importance of cities and not just looking to the federal government for leadership. Um, one way to get a foothold into red states is working with local officials in cities. So for example, there's 90 different cities uh, last last I knew um, who've adopted these renewable portfolio standards and have a goal of getting to 100% carbon-free um, electricity sources. Um, those include cities like Atlanta, like Georgetown in Texas, that are inside these red states. But the nature of what we're talking about is just that foothold can change the dynamics of the market of renewable energy in those places. So what feels impossible now, the notion of Texas or Georgia adopting some kind of renewable portfolio standard might not be impossible in a year or two once other people in that state can see what's possible. And I think your story that you just told is an important it offers another important lesson which is not only are cities and states just sort of more discrete uh, practical units to work with mm -hmm. but people are less ideologically polarized and ossified ossified at the local level so you can see partnerships and um, cooperation that is at this point kind of impossible to imagine at the federal level and isn't also one of the real values of uh, states, cities, and counties to innovate in this regard is to create uh, the economy for it, to create and in, to incentivize businesses for doing it, and creating infrastructure. Is, is that a, an important factor as well? That's right. I think um, I was telling the story of Cal uh, the California Renewable mm. Portfolio Standard. Um, that really started back in 2002, coming out of the energy crisis in California. That was when my organization, Environment California, first um, worked with the California state legislature to adopt the first RPS in California. And that was just a what feels now like a very modest goal of 20% um, carbon-free energy um, source electricity by the year, I think, 2020. And that was a much heavier lift to convince the legislature to go for that than it was to convince the legislature to go for 100%. Mm -hmm. And that's because at that point, there was no mandatory requirement or goal. So it just felt very aspirational and risky. But once the legislature did have the courage to take that step, that provided the um, commitment for future demand that the renewable energy um, industry needed to convince their investors to go ahead and build the infrastructure. And that allows us to get up to scale. So all the other, there's, I don't know if there was three or four different, um, you know, moving the goalposts up. But once, once we won that first battle in 2002, it was like the legislature was tripping over itself to go, oh, that goal is easy. Let's let's increase the goal, let's increase mm -hmm. the goal. And we see that in many of the other states that have adopted these RPS standards where you 
adopt the goal the first time, and then you just quickly realize how fast you can actually get there. And is your, um, do we see you know, similar language popping up in each, in various states and cities as well? And is your organization actually writing draft legislative language? That's right, yeah. Um, so as I mentioned before, um, the first state that we did this in was in California, and since that time, 30 states have come on board with similar RPS <clears throat> standards. Um, and we are moving into an additional eight states in the coming legislative sessions that start next calendar year. So yeah, we have our template language. And like I said earlier, we learn from state to state what works, what's more politically palatable in certain places. Um, and so we're able to leverage a victory in one place and lessons from one place to help us get, get in the door in another place. Uh, Maya, if Jay Inslee had won the presidency, would you be the new EPA administrator? <laughs> No comment. Okay. Um, there is a ton of people here, and I want to give everybody a chance to ask questions. So I'm going to ask one last question for each of you, and then please get ready to chime in, because that's always the best time is the Q&A from this kind of a crowd. But my question to each of you is, what issue or topic or story do you think is going unreported or underreported? And what would you suggest some of these journalists do about that? Who, who wants to go first? Yeah. Um. <laughs> My, my fellow panelists may smack me on this one. I think we spend too much time talking about climate change related to climate instead of talking about the actual positive outcomes of climate change that any person can actually wrap their arms around. And to me, that's um, energy efficiencies and job creation and more than anything else, just plain cost savings. And I'll give you one specific example. Um, we own our own utility company in the city of Fort Collins, and, and we did some... Um, rate changes that some people critically would say, well, you're you know, trying to change people's behaviors, and our answer is, yep, but here's why. <laughs> and and, I'll, and I'll, I'll give a specific example. So we went to, um, and if you guys are familiar with this, um, time of use rates, which simply means at certain times of the day, your electricity use, um, if you use it then, the, the, the rate will go up, right? And, people are, and if you use less during that time, your, your rates will drop a little bit. And people are like, why would you do that? And, and, the, and the simple reason is we're trying to lower the coincident peak. And coincident peak simply means if you're an electric provider, you have to be able to provide enough energy for the maximum consumable, right, of energy at any point in time. You can't just say, you turn yours off, you turn yours off, and we'll just figure it out. And you don't, we want to do rolling blackouts like they do in other areas. But we do incentivize people and say, if you lower your energy consumption between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., and, and um, you change it by not running your dishwasher, not doing your laundry, and so forth, and you do that in the morning instead, it's going to do a couple things. It's going to lower the coincident peak because that's when people use the um, energy the most. Electricity is between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. And if you shift it to a different time of day, guess what? Your rates will go down. And people would say, wait a minute. You're telling me when I can and can't do my... My laundry, I'm like, yeah, we kind of are, but there's an incentive to you because if you do it earlier in the day, you're going to save money because the rates actually triple, triple between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., but they more than triple reduce if you do it at a different time of day. So people said, huh, I'm not sure I like it, but we'll see. And when they compared their electricity bill month over month, year over year, and about doing these really simple changes, we're able to actually save money. And when you, tell, when you talk to people about saving money instead of climate change, mm. there's an easier way to get a lot of people on board. So I think that's kind of the untold story in some respects. You know, again, we talk about regulation and impact and saving the planet, which is a wonderful thing. But when you talk to people about energy efficiencies and saving money, they'll get on board like that. So just a way that, again, cities can have an impact in a big way. Um, so, uh, 
I noticed that I got flooded with SEJ emails when I got on the the guidebook and and, and clicked in to um, be able to engage in this forum. And I noticed that you had some nice kind of cocktail hours and engagements in the evening and sponsorship of things like, you know, beer and wine. Um, to me, uh, in our state, uh, it comes down to hops. 77% of all hops produced in the United States is in the Yakima Valley. Um, if you have had a beer lately, you have likely had um, uh, uh, hops from Washington State. If you've had a glass of wine lately, um, it may be uh, very uh, um close to the fact that you've had uh, some Washington wine. Um, if the headline is, um, you know, um, kiss your favorite IPA goodbye, I think folks might have a little bit uh, uh, more of a concern there. For us, climate change, we're exponentially affected by climate change in Washington state. We are very reliant on our snowpack for spring freshet that then fills our reservoirs, our rivers, our lakes, and our streams. Um, we have a huge reliance on that water. Um, for our agricultural industry. Um, our agricultural industry in Washington state is about a $49 billion food and agricultural um, agricultural food processing um, uh, economy. And um, we, uh, we just have um, an incredible reputation um, for um, the apples, for example, that um, we produce in Washington state, the majority of the apples in the United States. So if, if the headlines are your Hefeweizen is on the line, um, either it's going to cost a lot more because we won't be able to produce those hops that we've been um, doing so um, in the recent years, um, or um, the uh, the fact that um, uh, we will have a much more expensive um, types of, uh, of beer and wine. That 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 again hits the pocketbook. So I agree. Um, if I have a choice to put a light bulb in when you have to get to that ladder and find that really weird place in your house and get a light bulb in that's going to have an incredible efficiency, it might cost a little more on the front end, but I won't have to change it for 20 years. I'm going to go for that. Um, and my neighbors are going to go for that. And even my great aunt Bernice is going to go for that, um, even though she likes the old fashioned glow um, of a non LED light. Those things matter. What we eat, what we drink, the food we're trying to put on the table for our families and to provide um, and savings either at the gas pump um, or on our electricity bill. Yeah, I would um, sort of echo um, what they said and um, say energy efficiency um, is the cheapest way that we can fight climate change. Um, about two-thirds of our energy consumption in the United States is just wasted. Um, about 80% of the uh, fuel that we use for transportation is wasted. It just goes to heat. It's not actually moving our vehicle from one place to another. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in switching to more, more efficient energy sources and <coughs> reducing our energy use overall. You guys just released a study on electric buses, was mm -hmm. it? Can That's you right. Summarize that for us. Sure. Um, this is a new report. Yes, yes, and we have them downstairs at our table, so if anyone wants it. But yeah, we just did a, um, rep a report on the use of electric buses um, around the country. Um, 
we have we take a couple of different approaches to it. First of all, they're, they burn cleaner, so for kids who are taking school buses to school, it's safer for them um, if they're on electric buses. But obviously, it also is uh, saves schools money. It costs less over the li lifetime of a bus to have an electric bus versus um, a traditional bus. But the use of um, electric school buses is on the rise. Um, we've seen various cities and states be quite creative in how they can fund things like that. For example, um, uh, Racine, Wisconsin, used their VW settlement money to pay for six um, electric buses, um, which I think are being delivered as we speak. Um, but anyway, so there's so many different ways that uh, institutions at all different levels can make a difference and start to reduce their use of fossil fuels immediately. Okay, so I'm dead serious about going to questions. Any, any salient points you guys want to make first? Okay, yes, or state your name and, and also who you're with, please. We haven't considered that at all. I guess the question was about natural gas, and have we considered a ban? And no, we haven't. But what we are doing more and more is is getting serious about changing all of our building codes to have more LEED certification and energy efficiency. Again, it's the other side of the spectrum. If you can regulate the actual um, types of fuels, or better off, you can lower the consumption of fuel on the front end, right? We'd rather see electricity from renewables, but we're not considering regulating it. But in terms of making sure our, our buildings are much more energy efficient, we do that. I'll tell you what else we do is we couple incentives with energy efficiencies. So not to get too wonky, but you know there, there are things called metro districts where individual developments can add an extra layer of property tax to fund things like um, schools and, and roadways and so forth. We only offer that to certain developers and builders that only offer homes that have the highest energy efficiency rating. So that's how we incentivize it instead of, again, being punitive. Yes. The question is about concerns of states and counties piecemealing issues of addressing climate change, and wouldn't it be vastly better to have a federal policy? Well, it would be, a, I mean, it would be vastly better if we could get a federal policy. I do think that um, a piecemeal approach, piecemeal approaches do work. They both work because at least we're cutting emissions in places like California, the fifth largest economy in the world, um, even if we're not doing it for the entire country. But it, they, also, um, they also work in that they get us closer and closer to a tipping point where, for, you know, as I mentioned in California, it, the, the, the step, the victory that, we, um, that got us the furthest was, was the very first victory where we were able to plant our flag in the ground and say, we want 20% of our electricity to come from renewable energy sources. The more you have states and cities and universities like CSU doing that all over the country, eventually we, we just keep getting closer to a tipping point where I do think that will change the debate even at the federal level. And I like to think even with the current administration at some point that you, you can't deny what's happening, and you can't deny the economics um, and the common sense of the steps that states like California and Fort Collins have already taken. Hi there, uh, Evan Bush, Seattle Times. Um, my, uh, this question's for you. Um, Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, your department's latest tally of greenhouse gas emissions actually shows Washington's uh, numbers rising. And um, the legislature sets ambitious goals are they realistic, and what more is needed to get there? So um, 
and the other part of your um, analysis is that we have a huge population growth, um, and we're expecting another million people in the next several years. Um, and so the uh, Seattle area is booming. It's one of the fastest growing. Seattle's one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. So it is definitely a struggle. Um, we set our standards as a goal through our legislature to get to um, our 1990 levels um, and um, tried to get below those levels incrementally, you know, between now and 2035 and 2040 and 2050. And um, actually, we're having a dialogue with our legislature, I believe, this coming session, where we're going to say we maybe should even be more strict than those proposals. So um, when you look at the overall population, um, we have done pretty well. But the fact that we do have um, a lot more cars on the road, it has been tough. Um, so our 1990 levels of um, uh, CO2 emissions were around 90 um, a million metric tons. And um, um, we are coming up on 2020 where we have a big year um, and we may not quite get there um, because of uh, the uh, challenges we've seen with the legislature being nervous, initially supporting us on different types of measures to be able to reduce carbon emissions in our state. Um, we're now seeing that tide has turned. Um, so I, I am hopeful by the end of the end of 2020 that we will get to our um, emission targets that are in um, our legislature and we're doing everything we can, everything from um, including how our state agencies are run. Um, we have one of the largest fleets of 100% um, uh, electric plug-in vehicles um, for even our state employees and our state uh, fleet. So it is tough. Um, we're going, I'm hoping to get very, very close by 2020, um, but I don't think I want to put take my foot off the proverbial EV um, pedal um, because I think uh, we, we need to make progress uh, no matter what. And Evan, just in case you missed it off the top, but uh, Maya called the Trump administration climate policies dangerous and reckless and absolutely appalling. <laughs> yes, in the back. And then you. Kind of pick up on the federal versus state. I mean, can you address the federal versus state existing regional program that's been operational for 10 years now, um, the uh, Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is, you know, 10, depending on how you count, states in the Northeast, about to be followed by the Transportation Climate Initiative. Why aren't the Western states or any other group of states trying to follow that model? Uh, some more states are beginning to come in. It's proven it's lowering emissions by a lot, and now it's beginning to add on. So can you address the notion of, you know, forget the my state. What about regional? And your name and affiliation, please. Jan Spiegel, Connecticut. I'm hoping you can answer that. Yeah, I can. Are, are you talking about the Reggie program in the Northeast? As a matter of fact, I just heard Pennsylvania has um, decided to sign on this. Jersey's coming back. Right. Virginia's trying to come back in. Pennsylvania's just want to come in. And you've got TCI in progress, which is a transportation version. Yeah, let's let her answer. What, what well, so these are right, regional engagements where in states um, agree to collectively meet certain types of targets and put provisions into place to help reduce carbon pollution in their territories. Um, in Washington state, we, be we belong to the Pacific Coast Collaborative, um, including British Columbia, um, Washington, uh, Oregon, California, and um, we are working together to collaborate to come up with these types of agreements in terms of reducing carbon emissions. So we have something, it's not exactly the Reggie state uh, model, uh, but it is a regional engagement um, that uh, Governor Inslee has been uh, very closely in engaged in. Um, we also support each other in trying to come up with 
those pieces that we need within our states based on how we need to change our laws, going to our legislature and having that dialogue about what works best in our large cities and or in our rural territories. So we're not averse um, to that. I, I, I'm acquainted with many of the Reggie states, and they have a really good model. Yeah, in Colorado, we have what's called CC4CA. It's the Colorado Communities for Climate Action Planning, and it's just, um, I think we're up to 40 cities and towns in the state of Colorado all working together to lobby at a state level for climate change. So we do things at the state level that originate really at the city. Yes, question. Uh, yeah, my name is Louise Leaf. I'm with the Science and Media Project. I'm wondering if um, all of you can address a little bit your vision for public transportation initiatives. That's something where the U.S. seems to be lagging. You mentioned there are going to be a million more people in the Seattle area. What are you planning to do, and how can public transportation development contribute to yeah, so I'll, I'll start with a little different spin on it. I think it starts with land use planning more than anything else, candidly, and making sure that we're adding density along transportation corridors and actually creating healthy communities so people can actually um, get out of their home and, and walk to work or, or take a bike or a scooter or anything of that nature. So it's really preventing sprawl as well on the edges of communities. The city of Fort Collins, for example, completely redid our city's uh, land use plan, but at the exact same time, Concurrently, we did an update to our transportation plan, an update to our our transit plan as well, and that was very intentional. And it took longer by doing all three plans at the same time, but the nexus between land use and transportation is critical, and it creates a healthier environment for folks. So I do think we're a little behind, too, in terms of EV in the United States. I think we can do better. When I was in Europe in June, it's amazing how few people you saw in um, single occupancy vehicles. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to Oslo, for example, it was fascinating to me. They had a, a World War II bomb shelter in downtown Oslo that they converted to a parking garage. You're like, well, how does that help? Well, the issue is they were um, fully wired for EV vehicles, and only EV vehicles could use that parking garage, and it was premium real estate. So people who got those spaces actually could walk to work by, by, by using their EV. So I think we can do better in that space. The other one is we have to have better... Um, transportation mode switches and this is whether it's in states or in cities where people can you know maybe walk to a mode then take the bus and then get to another mode and then take a scooter and so forth and we have to have those interconnection points because if someone can't get from from <coughs> one point to their end point using different modes of transportation then it then it creates an in, inherent disincentive to use something other than a single occupancy vehicle yes um, we cover climate change lawsuits. Um, there's a bunch of lawsuits from cities and counties, the uh, state of Rhode Island against fossil fuel <coughs> companies. Um, so my question for the panel is what your view on that is. Should there be accountability in, in court uh, for the fossil fuel industry? Um, and basically, the cities are seeking damages to help pay for climate adaptation, um, which is going to be very expensive. Uh, King County, Washington filed a lawsuit. Uh, Boulder and San Miguel counties in Colorado also filed a lawsuit. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. And if it's not through this kind of climate liability litigation, then where is the money going to come from for climate adaptation, which these impacts are inevitable at this point? I think any we need to use every tool in our toolbox to get um, the fossil fuel industry to um, 
be held accountable for the ramifications of their business practices. Uh, you want to talk about the yeah, so we've got a lot of litigation in Washington State. Um, again, our um, you know our our uh, cities saying you know the you know at what point um, do those who potentially had knowledge about um, the ravages and potential harm of climate change on our planet, um, and that um, now we have a taxpayer dollars that are expected to pay for either resiliency, pulling back our communities where we have sea level rise issues in our state. We are pulling several tribal villages um, up upland more because they are being inundated. Um, and um, in my state, um, I'm frequently sued um, by uh, the fossil fuel industry. Um, in 2016, you may have heard that we adopted kind of the first of its kind cap and reduce bill. It's our clean air rule, our car rule, um, where we um, uh, found all, uh, we included in a regulatory scheme, all um, uh, factories um, and producers about more than 100,000 metric tons of carbon were to be starting to uh, be pulled in um, to reduce their carbon emissions by 1.7% a year or 5% uh, or so um, every three years. Um, and that case has gone all the way up to the Washington State Supreme Court. We've had our oral argument and we are waiting a decision. Um, so I've, uh, I have I get sued um, the minute I try to put a policy out there um, that gets to that. I mean, again, all the tools in the toolbox that Faye said um, makes a, a lot of sense, and uh, we need to come at this from all angles um, to be able to um, think seven generations ahead for uh, the legacy that we're going to leave for, for our kids. We uh, borrow this planet um, from our children, um, and we ought to be able to hand it over to them in a way that they can enjoy the things that we did, that our parents did, our great grandparents and our great grandparents did. And whether that's out enjoying fly fishing um, in the Madison River in Montana um, with a beautiful flow, um, breathing clean air, being able to see Mount Rainier in Washington on a beautiful sunny day, um, that we owe that uh, to the next generation. Yeah, and I'd argue that litigation is one angle, but consumer demand is the better way to approach that when it comes to renewables. Um, the example is, so the city of Fort Collins is in a, in a collaborative with three other cities to generate our power, and then we distribute it. And we made a commitment to be 100% renewable energy sourced well, by 2030. And the way to approach that is to make a really good business case that you can have a much more resilient, reliable, and affordable electricity system by using renewables. And people would say, well, you can't prove that up. And it's not yet. But we can say that it's much more resilient if you're relying on three separate sources, okay, relative to coal. Not to mention you're knocking down the negative externalities that we all know are available for coal. But here's the key piece. As we surveyed all the folks that are part of that collaborative, all the ratepayers, would they be willing in the short term to pay higher rates on the front end to make the capital investment to do renewables and get away from fossil fuel burning? 80% of the people said yes, they would. So the consumer demand is the better approach to that to me than litigation. And I would argue that um, it actually happens quicker because we know how long litigation takes. So, Anne? Um, each of you quickly, maybe. Um, Name and affiliation. Oh, sorry. Anne MC, Colorado, and I'm freelance. Um, two things that you would advise localities to do on their own? Two things, just if I had two things to do. You can make it one or three or <laughs> I have a hundred things, but um, 
I, I think, uh, again, providing those incentives for using multimodal right now is huge in our state. So we have, again, 45% of our carbon emissions come from our transportation um, uh, uh, situation. And Jeff made a good point. Land use is a huge issue. Ask that question. Every time we make a land use decision at a local level, are we ensuring that we are not increasing carbon emissions by virtue of how it takes families, people, um, kids to get where they need to go. Um, one wonderful program that I'm collaborating with the city of Seattle and King County on is our healthy um, urban um, homes. And we are finding that there are many blighted uh, areas of, of Seattle that are what are called brownsfield sites. So they're either abandoned property or um, not um, derelict property that hasn't been taken care of. We're, we're trying to find ways to be able to ha have affordable housing after we clean up that site, that contaminated site, and making sure that it's associated with a bus stop. Um, ab the ability to be able to get, they call it the last mile. How do we get the last mile from your bus stop to your home, from your bus stop to your office? Um, so asking those land use questions and making smart land use decisions and providing um, opportunities and incentives to get our families and our teenagers and our college students on buses and on rail and multimodal um, engagement. Yeah, and I would say that, especially for small communities, that people are anxious to do what they can for climate change on an individual and family basis. And there are extremely simple, either low-cost or no-cost ways to get people to be personally engaged. We have something in Fort Collins called the Shift Campaign, and it's so simple. And it's just shift their behaviors in certain ways for climate change. One is shift your ride, right, instead of shifting it from a single occupancy vehicle to a bicycle or a scooter or on foot, right? We have shift your cup, and that simply means if you're getting a cup of coffee from Starbucks, don't get another paper cup with a plastic lid. Bring your bring your mug with you and fill it up. The other one is like shift your cool. Instead of using air conditioning, use a fan. Simple little things like that. The average person really can gravitate towards. They can feel connected to it, and over time, can have a really impact on climate change. And it's real simple. Anybody, any city can do that. I would say first of all. Um, um, energy efficiency awareness, just a simple education and awareness campaign would go a long way. And then second is um, uh, set renewable um, energy standards if you don't already have them. And can I, well, I'm just going to add one more. I've got, I've got to do it. And it's about the beer fridge that some of you have in your garage. When it breaks down, go buy a refrigerator that doesn't have HFCs hydrofluorocarbons. So remember, we switched from CFCs because we were worried about the hole in the ozone. We got that cleared up, and then we ended up replacing that with HFCs, which have a very incredible, potent greenhouse gas. So when you go buy that new refrigerator, that small college fridge for your niece or your nephew um, or your child, um, or you have to replace your refrigerator in your home, find a refrigerator that does not use HFCs. We just banned HFCs in Washington State through our last legislature. It is used in and uh, different types of chemicals, whether it's in your car, your air conditioner. Um, but we can save the planet one cool new fridge at a time. All right. Yes. Uh, Dennis Pillion with the Alabama Media Group. Uh, I'm just curious to get the panel's thoughts. Can you imagine a world where places like Alabama can start approaching carbon neutrality, and what would it take to get there? Simple answer is yes, of course. I'm not going to say no. Right? Be, <laughs> Yay! Yeah, no, they can never do it. No, I think it's, again, it's realizing that there's so many different things connected to climate change that aren't about weather, 
right? I'll, I'll give one more example if you guys don't mind. So in the city of Fort Collins, we have a, a, a big challenge with affordable housing, right? Like, like Seattle and other places like Boulder, Denver. And there's a whole bunch of ways to, to, to um, address many different challenges in a community and climate change goes along with it. So here's a real simple example. So our, our, our rental rates are extremely low here. So landlords can do whatever, they can set whatever rates they want for rentals to get in. Unfortunately, you know, if you're, if you're a young family and you can only afford to rent right now and the rents keep going up, you go end up going into a really poor housing unit, right? There's also no incentive for the landlord to make improvements to those, those buildings because they can charge whatever they want. So what ends up happening is they're, they're poorly maintained, right? And a lot of that happens with um, poor heating and ventilation systems, no weather, weatherization, roofing, so forth. So not only are young families staying in, in substandard housing, right? But they're also in an area that's not a healthy environment that has an impact on, you know, let's say mom and dad who may get colds and flus and aren't able to get to work, but it has even greater impact on the children because they also are getting colds and sick and whatever, and they're having to then change units, and that's housing instability. And there's a direct connection between housing instability and attainment at educational level at, at kindergarten and third grade and high school level. So all things, those things put together. So our solution was really simple. How in the world can we provide uh, an incentive to both homeowners and landlords to address those issues? So we went out and actually um, partnered with the Bloomberg Foundation on a pilot program where we offered low interest loans for landlords to, to do improvements on energy efficiencies for the homes. We actually use our, the city's billing system on bill financing to add the financing cost of that loan to make the energy efficiencies on the utility bill. We split that bill up. The tenants only pay the operational costs. The, the landlord is actually paying the capital cost, buying down the loan. They make the improvements. Who all benefits? The landlord, they have a better product that they can sell. The, the people in the home itself, because they're living in a better unit, and oh my gosh, energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. That's climate change. Mm -hmm. But we're also addressing a more stable community, um, better rental units, and affordable housing at the same time. And the reason I use that for Alabama is if I, if I said to that community about that story in that program, and I never mentioned climate change, and I said, would you guys like to do it? They'd say, you bet we'll sign up today. And I said, oh, by the way, it's climate change. Ah, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. So that's just a, a real concrete story of how in areas where it may not be more broadly politically supported, you can get people on board. So sorry for the long story. I think it's that's beneficial, good. though. Questions, please. Yes. Um, and then you next. Okay. Good. Okay. Yeah. Um, name, name and affiliation. Oh, yeah. I'm Leslie Emo. I'm a freelancer. Um, I was kind of curious specifically with kind of this uh, Fort Collins example. Like you were talking about the uh, methane going to a company that's working on a methane-powered engine. Yep. I'm curious for kind of all three of you where not just cost saving, but future making money factors into this conversation. Because I'm sure one nice, one day it'd be nice to be that city that is where, you know, successful engine company is headquartered, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, kind of where that factors into all three of the conversations that you have with your areas um, about the potential <coughs> of not just fostering this innovation, but then eventually making money off of that, housing that innovation. Well, certainly the argument that um, the renewable energy industry and the clean energy industry can generate jobs is a very attractive argument. Governor Polis talked about it in his speech. I, um, my organization tries to stay away from those arguments because um, we think we should do these things even if they don't create 
green jobs. So that's kind of number one. And then number two, it's also the case that we think, um, you know, our our world has, um, through innovation and entrepreneurialism, has. Um, we live in an amazing world today, and we think we're getting to the place where um, we need to shift the debate around just what generates jobs, that we should be entering a, uh, a phase where we're actually thinking about the possibility that not everyone, maybe people don't all need to work full time all the time, um, because that is, it, participating in that conversation and using the argument um, that you know, uh, we should do something because it creates more jobs. It's hard to see where that ends. Um, and actually, we should perhaps be celebrating the fact that we, as a society, have gotten to the place where we're able to generate a lot of what society needs to survive without everyone laboring all the time. So that's probably not what you were looking for. But th that is an explanation for why my organization doesn't go whole hog with the argument about green jobs. So we just jump right over to you, Heidi. I'm Heidi from the Nevada Fulgurity. I had a question kind of following up on that, which is whether <clears throat> studies to pitfalls of, you know, oftentimes these programs are publicly funded programs for retrofitting or, you know, studying or whatever. And then the pitfall of that public money going into private hands, uh, you know, when contractors get hired, I know that we see that, especially in development. But, you know, is that something that, that you're studying that, that is a problem, that is coming? That um, I, that sounds like a great study to do. I don't know that we've actually done any research on that. Okay. Is there ever pushback about that from, in the, like, for your projects in the, in the public sector, they, these public projects becoming private? Uh, <coughs> yeah, you know, I would say when in doubt, create a pilot. That's what we do in Fort Collins, to be <laughs> candid with you. And the reason I say that is because we are worried about things like that, right? But if you make it a, a small program, right, and you offer incentives by whatever it is, whether it's partnering with uh, Colorado State University or, or a different company, it's if you're really clear about what the goals are, if you're really clear about how the money must be used, but more importantly, you measure the specific outcome of how that money happens, and at the end of the day, they didn't reach the outcome, you stop the program. It's really that simple. And that's why I really think it's important to pilot it that way. Because you do worry about that. You worry someone's going to abuse it or take advantage of it. Because there are times when you just don't come up with every way to regulate it. Sometimes the best, it's interesting, we talked earlier, right from the jump, is like, how could the feds help us more than anything else? My argument would be to go to Washington, D.C. and get some huge grants to, to do innovative pilot programs, but without a lot of red tape. Give us the money, and then we'll roll out the programs that would be best for the city of Fort Collins, and then measure it to see if they're successful or not. Uh, we have about 10 minutes left. There are some seats for you guys uh, out there. Yes, go ahead. Uh, Clint Wilder with Clean Edge for Jeff. You were talking about uh, you have a, a cooperation agreement with two other cities mm -hmm. for electricity generation. <clears throat> um, how, how is that structured? Is it So are you a uni with them, or are you part of Excel? Just, just for it. No, we are not part of Excel. <laughs> so it's a Platte River Power Authority, three other cities. We own it all together. What are the other cities? 
The other cities are Longmont, Estes Park, City of Fort Collins, and Loveland. All four of us coming up together. We own it equally, and um, our elected officials actually create the board of governors, if you will, for that utility company, and that's how it works. But we generate the power together. What is unique and interesting, if I understand where you're leaning into, you know, Fort Collins has been doing climate action planning for 20 years. I'll say it again, 20 years. But we did still do a climate emergency, although we were like, it hasn't an emergency. We've done it for 20 years ago. But other cities are catching up, right? And we don't see that in a vain way. But when you're in those power collaboratives with other cities that may not have the exact same leanings as you do, it can be challenging. But I think by leading by example and showing energy efficiencies, which we talked about like crazy, that's how you get more people on board and have a better approach to buying energy together. Did I answer that? Yeah. Okay. Who hasn't asked a question yet? Yes. Name, name and affiliation. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm confused doing that. I'm Jillian Mock, I'm a freelancer. Um, I'm curious on a city level, if you accept these renewable energy goals, what do you see as the primary potential challenges to actually meeting those goals down, down the line? Yeah, Maya mentioned it. It's um, City of Fort Collins is a fast-growing community, right? So you're, you're gaining population growth, which, of course, then you're consuming more greenhouse gas than you were before because you're having more people, and it's creating enough programs and efficiencies to lower it at the same time. So that's, I think that's really the challenge is to accommodate good, positive growth that it helps the entire community while at the same time lowering greenhouse gases. And it goes back to this gentleman's question earlier. It's when you have new development, can you do new development in such a way that it's so energy efficient, whether it's uh, the homes that we live in or how people use water or how people are traveling to lower that greenhouse gas. But I think controlled measure positive growth and also learn greenhouse gases at the same time is a bit of a challenge, I would say more than anything else. But it still comes down to behavior change. Again, we think about how Americans travel relative to Europeans, that, there's a big difference there. So we had to do a lot more in the EV space. Yes, uh, you standing up, go ahead. Oh. I was, so on the RPS, um, I was talking to a source who said that you know, now that solar is so much cheaper, and renewables are so much cheaper that maybe RPS isn't the policy to actually get the goals that you're looking for, meaning reducing carbon. And I don't know if he, the buzzword he used was uh, carbon optimization or emissions optimization, meaning like focus more laserly on the emissions because an RPS doesn't necessarily reduce emissions, it just incentivizes renewables, right? So I guess, I don't know if there's, if what you thought about that is if, if there's other policy orientations that are beyond the RPS now that was, you know, solar and wind is, is cheaper than it was when these first came on board. Well, there's, yeah, there's many different policy policies that we need to pursue. Um, so, for example, there's um, having auto emission standards, right. which, um, but I guess as like a state, you know, like as a state or a city, like as a kind of orientation of like a priority of what what to prioritize as a state. Because I well, so in Arizona they're gonna use a lot of political capital to increase their RPS. Yeah. And maybe that political capital is better used pursuing something. Well, I think um, uh, I still think that you should pass an RPS in Arizona, but um, the you know once we green the electricity grid then then you do things like you um, incentivize more electric you know electrifying your fleet so for example in California where we just won the 100% uh, mandate in California we're now shifting to working to um, look at tackling the transportation problem. So we're now looking at electrifying the truck fleet, you know, so that setting a goal to have 15% of the, the truck fleet be electric vehicles. And 
um, you know, putting in a thousand miles of protected bike lanes and um, other things like that. Um, and then we were talking about the regional greenhouse gas initiative. Those <clears throat> northeastern states are now looking at doing using a similar model to tackle the transportation emissions problem. So there are different policy handles that people are we're pursuing all over the place all the time. But I don't I think it's the case that we still we need to finish the job on greening the electricity grid. Mm -hmm. Still, we're not done with that yet. Correct, yeah. Pricing is one thing, but I'll just say battery storage, we have a lot of work to do in that space still, a lot. Okay, questions. Yes, sir. Hi, uh, Brendan Rivers from WJCT, NPR station in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, we have a city-owned utility there, um, but it's exploring privatization. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of my listeners, and I'm curious, what are there advantages for uh, like a city-owned utility when it comes to addressing energy efficiency and renewable energy, and, and what are they? Yeah, so you say that because the city of Pueblo is going through that in the other way it, yeah to the ground just the opposite I would say there's you know I'll make an argument that local control is always best in, in, a, in a heartbeat but earlier I talked about time of use we also have time of day and, and playing with utility rates to have behavior change I think that can be better done at a, at a municipal level than a private area as well and let's also not forget you know good old-fashioned um, profit margin if a city utility company owns it we're, we're neutral right we're not trying to make money it's an enterprise fund where if you're going to privatize it there's a profit margin that someone would want to tap into we would take that profit margin if you will reinvest that into our infrastructure and actually go with more renewables and actually making our system more reliable so I would make an argument but clearly I'm biased that you uh, 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 city-owned utility company is the way to go because you have a lot more local control. You can shape your energy use and your rate structure and create efficiencies. <laughs> yes. I'm just curious, uh, to get to carbon neutrality, um, how do you all view carbon pricing? Is it absolutely necessary to, to get to that goal? Or? Who wants to start? <laughs> I think that there are many ways to get to carbon neutrality and I don't think carbon pricing is you know the end-all be-all or silver bullet to do that um, and and in Washington State um, I think we're putting a lot of measures into place um, that is not necessarily looking at uh, carbon pricing so our cap and reduce bill uh, our rule that we put into place that we're hoping is upheld by the Washington Supreme Court um, work on the transportation grid um, the uh, land use issues um, HFC uh, uh, banning. So we, we're putting a lot of um, uh, multiple um, solutions out there for a, a collective um, uh, win that we're looking for for an outcome. It is an option. Um, I've seen it uh, be successful. Um, I believe it's being employed in British Columbia, um, and um, it seems like they're having some success there. Um, I don't think necessarily it's the only way to go to be able to get there, but it is a tool that if um, uh, locals and or states are looking to that um, would um, be another way to get to uh, reduction. Okay. Yes, in the back. Uh, Bryce Gray with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. So St. Louis, like a lot of cities, has made a, a bid to get 100% clean energy by 2035. But, you know, we're in Missouri, which is over 70% coal-powered, so awash in the sea of coal. So I guess I'm curious to hear what um, ideas or options, you know, do St. Louis and, and other places in similar boats have in terms of get it, making that a reality despite um, the obvious challenge 
around that, I suppose. Yeah, so I would argue that um, St. Louis and others that are so reliant on coal that they could join a different um, purchase power collaborative and a collaborative that has more renewables. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Completely shifting away your energy sources to a larger group, the pricing usually drops then as well. So that's just one angle for them to do it. Um, I think a lot of that depends on scale more than anything else, right? I think the more people you have engaged in purchasing power together, the greater likelihood that you're going to have solar and wind um, available to you. So that's just one idea for you. Anything else? Yes. Did your battery study uh, figure in uh, electric buses the climate change? Because in, in Nevada, Las Vegas, they had two bus companies come in recently to test electric buses, and they found that they didn't really work because it's so hot, um, and the heat sucks the energy out of these batteries much quicker than the northern Nevada. Right. Could work. Yeah. I think actually, uh, I think we did. I can't tell you what we found, but if you want to take a look at okay. this, you can. Yeah. <laughs> And Mark is I'm also not, in the back room. He can help summer. you as well. All right. Any final questions? It's been a very, very large crowd. And uh, what, what great questions we've had. And what terrific panelists. Thank you so much for your insight. Let's Thank, you. Thank you all. Thank you all very much. I'm sure they'll stick around for a few minutes to answer your questions if you want to.